I want to read another version today to make this a little, to bring it kind of down home a little bit more. This is from the New Living Translation. Here's how it uh, recites Galatians 6.1. Dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path. But be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. Now, I want to go back to the NIV, and actually as I'm talking this morning, we're just going to keep the NIV version uh, up behind me there, because I want it to kind of get into you today as we're we're walking uh, through this. So it starts out and says this, brothers and sisters, right, if anyone is caught in any kind of sin. Now, I want to stop there. We need to talk because uh, this is where, if you're not careful, you can kind of take an unhealthy view of this verse, a view that I don't think this verse intends for us to take at all. So when uh, Paul tells us here, brothers, if anyone is caught in a sin, this is not the idea of being busted, okay? This is not the idea that, hey, we, you caught someone sinning, you know, we were all on the lookout for sin, and the, at, the, at the first sign of sin, we just jumped on somebody like we're the sin detectives, you know, of the universe or the spiritual Gestapo of the spiritual world. That is not what is involved or in view in these verses, right? This is not a aha, gotcha, gotcha moment that Paul is addressing here. That's not what this is. Uh, this is actually saying, listen, if you look around in your assembly, if you look around in the family of God, and you see a brother or a sister who is struggling in sin, who's being overcome by it, who's being overwhelmed by it, I mean, this is the idea, folks, of seeing a man or a woman drowning. This is the idea of looking around and noticing that someone is being attacked by wild animals. What do you do when you look around and someone's being attacked by wild animals? What do you do when you look around and you see someone drowning? What's the loving thing to do? You rush to their rescue, right? You rush in and you do everything you can to bring life out of that situation. That is the kind of picture that is being painted here. Uh, this is not, you know, a Gestapo story. This is a compassionate response to a brother or sister who's lost their way. That's what this is. It's what it's meant to be. And so it says, brothers or sisters, if anyone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him, right? So here's what we have. We have a person who's drowning in their own sin, who's being overwhelmed, eaten alive by uh, the consequences of their own sin. And so uh, you or I, we notice that. Instead of doing nothing and just sticking our hands in our pockets, right, what we do is we rush in. 
Now, often we don't rush in, and we'll talk about all the reasons why we don't rush in, but often we don't rush in because we know it's going to be awkward, it's going to be hard, it's going to be a difficult conversation. And, you know, there's all, we, we formulate all these reasons in our minds why it's okay to just stuff our hands in our pockets and do nothing, right? I mean, we do this all the time. I, I sometimes do this. Um, and, and so what he's saying is, look, we have, to, we have to take, we have to remember and we have to remind ourselves how incredibly destructive and debilitating sin really is. And so then it says uh, the, 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 that those who are spiritual should restore them. Now, I, so again, this can go to a bad place. So when we talk about the responsibility of spiritual people to come alongside and restore another brother or sister, here's what we know he's not saying, and I can prove it. We know that he's not saying, okay, those of you who are the varsity team in the faith, right? Those of you who are the super mature people, you're the ones that should kind of rush in there and do this. Those of you who are the super saints right? Which, I mean, if that's the command, then what are, what are most of us in the room going to do? We're going to look around at each other and go, wow, there's nobody here that's really qualified to do this. Because none of us are super saints, right? None of us are super spiritually mature. And furthermore, we know, uh, we know this because earlier in the book, Paul had to confront another follower of Jesus named Peter. He had to correct him. He had to restore Peter because he said that Peter was acting in a way that wasn't consistent with the gospel. Now, here's what's interesting about that interaction that we taught about several months ago in this book is that Peter was actually older in the faith than Paul was. Okay, so, so Peter is the older one in the faith, but yet you have someone who's younger in the faith, who's coming alongside and bring, bringing much needed correction, right? Restoration to the heart and the mind and the life of Peter. We also know that that's not what it, what's intended, that this idea of it being a super saint or someone who's on the varsity level of the faith is inaccurate because of the context. Remember last week, he talked about the importance for all, every believer, every follower of Jesus to walk in the Spirit, to live yielded to the Spirit, to be surrendered to the Spirit, to keep in step with the Spirit every single day. And then he went on to say, hey, and when, when people do that, the kind of fruit that pops up in their lives is fruit like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control, right? So, so this is a command for people that are exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit in their life because they're yielded and surrendered and submitted to the Spirit so when he says, so you who are spiritual, what he's really saying is you who are walking by the Spirit. And here's the good news. You don't have to be part of the varsity team in the faith to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. You don't have to be super mature to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. You don't. Any of us can do this. Any of us who are followers of Jesus can live this out. 
But it's all about a yieldedness, a surrender to the Holy Spirit of God, right? So the motive here is so important. We're not working as judges or detectives. We're working as friends and co-heirs and partners. So important. And this word restores such a beautiful word. It's actually a medical term. Um, it's used to describe the mending of a broken bone. So think a cast, right? Think, um, you know, setting a bone so that it can heal and grow back together. Think in terms of performing surgery on someone to remove a tumor. I mean, think in terms of chemo or radiation. Now, All of those things involve pain, right? They're difficult. But the purpose of those things is to bring healing and wholeness to someone. And the purpose of restoration, even though it will be painful, even though it will be difficult, of restoration is always, it's exactly the same. It's for the help, it's to benefit or to build up a brother or a sister in Christ who needs us. And it's so beautiful because, you know, when you restore something, right, you bring it back to life. You make it, you make it, uh, you make it useful again. You make it whole again. And there's a joy in that. And so when something is restored, it begins to serve the purpose for which it was made. And when you and I come alongside another brother or a sister in Christ, we are helping them embrace the purpose for which they were made. Because the reality is they've lost their way. They're overcome. They're being eaten alive. And we have a responsibility to move in and do something and not just stuff our hands in our pockets, and look the other way. So, uh, how do you go about that? Um, I mean, you know, because we've already admitted, right, that when you're going to rush into a situation like that, it's hard, it's difficult. You don't know what to say. You don't feel qualified. It's awkward. It's hard, right? But, but I think the text gives us some clues here. Here's what it says. Brothers, if anyone is caught in a sin... You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So here's the how. In a spirit of gentleness. And then he goes on to say, keep watch on yourself so that you too are not tempted. So really two words that we're going to unpack together. The first one is we do it gently. And the second is that we do it humbly. And uh, would you agree? So let's talk about gentle first. Would you agree with me that gentle is kind of a relative term, right? So in other words, what's gentle to you may not be gentle to somebody else, and what's gentle to somebody else may not be gentle to you, right? So I mean, because some people, their idea of gentleness is to just speak the truth, and people like this say things like, well, all I did was tell them the truth, right? As if, as if just because it was the truth, they had, you know, permission to run in there. Listen, folks, the truth without love is just an attack. If you share the truth with somebody else just because it's the truth, but you're not motivated by a desire to build up or restore, all you did was attack 
that person. And the reality is there is some of us in the room, and some of us, for some of us, the truth comes a little bit easier. And, and we kind of think a lot about the truth. And then there's people on the other end of the, the spectrum that love comes easier for them. The truth is a lot harder. It's harder for them to speak the truth to somebody. And, and so you have to take into account this paradigm in which we all live, right? And so when you say to, to be gentle with someone, um, you have to think in terms of, okay, which kind of person am I? Am I a person that the truth comes a little easier to, or am I a person that love comes a little easier to? Because here's why this is so important, to know who you are. Because if you don't, so if you're a truth person, and, and you're not thinking in terms of like gentle, oh man, that's going to go so south so quickly right so you gotta so if you're a truth person you gotta ramp up on that gentleness piece I mean you've got to really drive that home you've got to live in that spot you've got to speak continually out of that spot whereas if you're a person and the love piece comes a little bit easier you're gonna have to ramp up that truth piece a little bit because you could be so uh, wishy-washy right that they don't they're not even sure what you're trying to tell them I've had people do that to me I've had people come and try to have conversations with me and they're like well you know and maybe and possibly and this and that and I walk away and I go I don't even know what that person just tried to say to me. I don't even know what they're talking about, right? So you want to ramp up on the true side because of the perspective that you're coming from. And this is what I mean when I say that gentleness is a relative term, right? So some people go after other people like with a sledgehammer, you know, in the name of Jesus and think they just did a good thing. Folks, it is never a good thing to take a sledgehammer to another human being in the name of Jesus. That is not what this verse is uh, advocating. But, but I think there are churches where that's what they do. Not here. Not here. We don't do that. Scripture teaches that uh, we're to do it differently, right? Um, and so I'll say this, the truth without love is an attack, and love without the truth is a crisis. I mean, so, so like if you're a person and you say, you know what, I'm just going to love other people, and they'll come around because I'll just keep loving them. Listen, if there's no truth in your loving relationship, I'm just telling you now, they're not going to come around, they're just not. This is why there's a wonderful verse that I think so complements what we're talking about here. It's in Ephesians chapter 4. And he's talking about the process of spiritual, how it is that people grow up into their faith, how they mature, right? How they, how they get to the varsity level. And here's what he says. He says, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the wind. Okay, I'm going to stop there, by the waves or by the wind. I want to stop there because one of the ways to recognize spiritual immaturity in another human being is they're just always back and forth. I mean, if things are going good, they're good. If things are going bad, they're bad, right? They just, they just kind of blow whichever way the wind goes. But as we grow and we begin to mature in our faith, we get more anchored to Jesus. If, if things go bad, we don't get bad, right? If things go good, we're still good. This is what maturation in the faith 
looks like. So he says then, so we don't, wanna, we, we don't want anybody here to be a spiritual infant or a spiritual child because they're going to be indecisive, they're going to be back and forth, they're just, there's not going to be any stability to their life. And then he goes on and he says this, rather speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Isn't that beautiful? I mean, so what he's saying is, look, you know, we can, uh, we can come to one another, we can speak truth with a motivation of love, a desire to build someone else up. And that is one of the primary ways and the primary vehicles by which people will grow up in their faith and get to the varsity, you know, level, right? Uh, but it's now, uh, so let me just say a couple things. So he says also, not only are we to do it gently, but we're to do it humbly. The way Paul says it here is, look, but listen, as you approach somebody else, if you're going to restore a human being, you have to be in the process of restoration yourself, right? If you're going to restore someone else, you want to make sure that you have an eye on you, an eye on your conduct, an eye on your behavior. So as you're you know, so really, it'd be great if we all had like three eyes in our head for these purposes. We don't, right? I don't see many of you that do. But it would be great if we did, because then we could keep an eye to heaven. We could keep an eye on the person that we hope to restore. And then we could keep an eye on to ourselves, right? But since you don't have three eyes, I'm going to tell you, keep an eye on the person. And Paul's advice here is keep an eye on yourself. Keep an eye on them. Keep an eye on you. In other words, do this humbly. Recognize that you're in process. You're on the same journey that this brother or sister is, right? In fact, I think uh, there's a couple of ways you can read this verse. There's a couple of ways you can think about it. And my fear, so I think there's a better way to think about this verse. I think there's a better way to translate it than what we often think. So here's what I think we think when we read the verse. Hey, if you're going to go help somebody, for example, who um, is struggling in addiction, well, you better watch yourself because you might be tempted to step into the same addiction that they have. Or, you know, whatever. I mean, you can put anything in the blank there. I do not think, I'm not sure, but I don't think that's what Paul is saying. I think he's saying something much more dramatic. I think what he's saying, listen, watch yourself or you're going to be tempted to pride and you're going to be tempted to superiority. You're going to think that, hey, I don't have the struggle that they do. So, hey, as I rush in there, I'm rushing in there like Captain America, right? I mean, I'm rushing in there with my shield, and, like, and because I don't struggle I'm the, in that area, I'm the, per, I'm the only person that can swing in there and save the day and help this person, right? And I think what Paul is warning against here is not that you will struggle with the same sin that they do. What I think he's saying is that you and I will begin to struggle with the sin of judgment and superiority of pride because and, and I'll I'm going to tease this out even more because this is so important I mean because we 
so let me again just talk what, about what it means to be a human being. Let's just think about that together for a few minutes, right? I think just, and this is not a Christian problem, this is a human being problem, right? That, so here's the way it works. We'll see someone struggling with a sin, and we'll think to ourselves, wow, that's not like a struggle for me at all. I must be so much more spiritual than them. I must be so much further along in my faith than them. And, or, or we'll go, wow, it's really cool that I don't struggle with that like they do. It's, you get where this is going, right? We all do this because here's why we do this. What I've discovered is that we're all incredibly gracious with people who sin in the same way that I do. So like if I know Brian, right, and Brian and I have a relationship and Brian sins in the same way that I do, he's susceptible to the same kind of sins that I am. I have all the empathy and the compassion in the world for Brian. I get it. We're brothers in this together, right? But if I look across the room and I, I, I lock eyes with somebody who struggles with completely different kinds of sins than me, do you know what I do? I immediately go to, ooh, that's not good. That person, wow, that person really needs to grow up. I mean, come on. I mean, because that's not a struggle for me. Do you see where I'm going with this? We're incredibly tolerant of people that, uh, that share our issues, and we're incredibly intolerant of people with whom we can't relate. And that's why I believe what Paul is really saying the temptation Paul is warning us to avoid is the temptation to pride or superiority or to judgment. Here's the other thing, right? Here's the backside of that. If I go to a brother, if I've prayed about, God, here's how I'm going to go. I want to restore them. I want to I see them set free. Right, if I go to a brother or a sister and that's my motive and, and that person senses a humility in me and a genuine love for them, 90% of the time that conversation is going to go right. But if that person just sniffs that I'm like the church lady, you know what I mean? Like, mmm, you know, that kind of deal, right? Okay, how do you think that's going to go? It's not going to go well at all, is it, Right? No, see, listen, nobody wants to be corrected or restored by the church lady. Nobody. Nobody does. Because we can all smell that a mile away. And you know what? It stinks. It smells really, really bad. So, uh, so important, right? So the humble thing to do is as I go to somebody else, I, I remember, hey, you know what? I'm a believer in process just like they are. Now, I want to come at this backwards because I, I want to get at another really important point about restoration. So uh, what I want to do is look at it from two perspectives. I want to look at it from the perspective of the person doing the restoring, and I want to look at it from the perspective of the person being restored. Now, let me be clear. We should all, we're, we're all going to play both roles all through our lives, okay? So in other words, 
none of us have grown so much that we can't be restored. And uh, so, so in other words, we should know this from both sides of the issue, right? We should look at it from the side of the one being restored, and then we should look at it from the side of the one doing the restoring. So let's say that, it, that I'm the one, I see someone, uh, you know, who's drowning, who's giving in to temptation, who has this pervasive type of behavior that's going against God's revealed will for their life, right? So if I see, like, disdain for their family, or if I see neglect of their wife, or if I see anger or bitterness or resentment, right? If I, I mean, if, if I can just see how that's impacting their relationships, then I'm going to first search my own heart, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to humbly acknowledge, God, hey, I'm in process just like they are. I sometimes struggle with anger. I sometimes neglect my wife. I sometimes do these things. I may not be as characterized by it as they are, but this is in me too, right? So you do that kind of self-health checkup before you kind of rush in, right, to, to help somebody else. We just search our own hearts. We're aware of our need for grace. Listen, the beautiful thing about the gospel is that the gospel allows every one of us to drink from the same fire hydrant of the grace of God. So I need God's grace as badly as any of you, and any of you need God's grace as badly as I do. We all drink from the fire hydrant of God's grace. If we don't, then we have not partaken of the gospel. We're not partakers of the gospel, right? So for the one who is spiritual, one who sees the struggling, one who sees uh, the engulfed, right? Our job is just to get into our own hearts and go, okay, what's my motivation? Do I genuinely, genuinely want to help them? Do I genuinely want to build them up? Do I genuinely want to see them move forward and take new ground in their faith? And then roll up our sleeves and go, okay, come on, let's get through this together, Right? Uh, but what if uh, you're going to be the recipient? What if, what if um, you're struggling and someone notices and they're going to come and talk to you? I'd like to point out some things that we all do when someone comes to us to bring restoration. Because I want us all to be on guard against this. And I think, it's, I think it's usually our knee-jerk reaction, right? When somebody comes, the, our first response that we have to push through is this response. The response is somebody comes to you and they go, hey, man, you know, I've kind of noticed this about you. Our knee-jerk reaction is we want to do this. Me? What about you? I mean, like, you're all perfect. So what we want to do is we want to look at some sin. We want to look at the fact that they're in process, just like us, right? And use that as a reason to set aside what they're saying. So we want to discount what, what they're speaking to us, the truth that they're actually speaking to us, because they're in process with us. And we all want to do this. So what will happen is someone will come to you and you'll feel critical towards them in your heart. Who do they think they are? I mean, do they really think they're farther along in this area than me? And I want to point out to you that that's the same sin. It's the sin of pride. It's the sin of judgment. It's the sin of arrogance. It's the sin of avarice. And it's exactly the same sin 
as that, that the one who's called to initiate the conversation has to be careful of, right? Um, so, so, yeah, this is a come alongside, right? You have to be willing to push through that knee-jerk reaction of pride. And you have to want, listen, here's the deal. You have to want to grow so badly that you will listen to anybody if it will help you grow. I'm going to say that again. You have to want to grow so badly that you will listen to anybody who comes alongside you to help you grow. This has to be in our hearts. This has to be our mindset, right? So two things. First, because again, I'm just kind of teasing this out, right? What happens when somebody comes alongside of us? Here's kind of what it looks like. So one of, the, one of the other things we'll do is we'll go, so by the way, all of us have friends or, you know, at least a friend, right? But here's what I know about friendships. And I don't know how to say this kindly or gently, so I'm just going to say it. When it comes to friendships, most of your friends are cowards, they will not tell you the truth. They want to get along with you. They want you to like them. And because of that insecurity, they are not going to speak to you. So when you find a friend who is not a coward, you better hang on to that friend. You better stoke that friendship. You better buy them as many lunches as you can to get to hang out with them, right? I mean, it, you should crawl under their bed and sleep there at night if you can figure out a way to do that, right? In a way that doesn't, well, there's probably no way to do that. It isn't stalkish, right? But you can get my point. That's a friend you want to keep because that kind of friend is few and far between. So here's what we do. Someone comes along to restore us. What do we go? We go to our cowardly friends and we say, hey, can you believe? And they go, yeah, he was so wrong. I mean, you know, the reason he probably told you to love your wife, have you seen how unhappy his wife looks? Right? That's probably what this is about. I mean, Bill, yeah, he's just so bad. He's so critical. The person we need to go to is not our cowardly friend that's going to agree with us and help us wallow in the mire of our pride, right? But we want to go to that friend who's going to say, no, no, you know what? I think Bill has a point. I don't think you treat Cindy well all the time. And I think you've got to get your arms around that. That's the friend that you want to go to. But you know what we do? Just by... Pride drives us to our cowardly friends. Pride drives us to our friends who will not speak the truth because, you know, we know that they want us to like them. And so it's this insecurity that drives the whole thing in a way that's just unhealthy and, frankly, ungodly. So is there anybody's toes I haven't stepped on yet this morning? You know, one of the things I love about bringing messages like this, see, you get it for like 35 minutes. God gives it to me all week long, 
right? I mean, I have to wrestle and struggle just like some of you are like wrestling and struggling right now. I've been wrestling and struggling with this all week because right, I'm in process just like all of you. I mean, this is our, this is our ship, right? This is our, uh, yeah. So, all right. So, don't just go find people that disagree with you and then don't look for the faults in the life of the person who's bringing restoration. Don't look for their faults to discount what they're saying. Uh, because everybody has faults. And so, the, so just think this through. Let's just logically tease this out. If you're going to look for a fault in every person that's going to come and try to speak some truth into your life, uh, are you ever, 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 ever going to allow anybody to speak truth into your life? No. This is how men and women get into their 60s and their 70s and their 80s, and they're still just as immature in their faith as they were when they trusted Christ in their 30s. Uh, what I'm telling you is that age and spiritual maturity are not the same thing. Right? They're complete, you know, you can be on a completely, totally different trajectory, right? So don't do things like this. Somebody comes to you and they bring something they've seen and you go, oh, like you think you're so perfect. Oh, Miss Perfect. Oh, Mr. Perfect, right? Don't do that. That's the knee jerk, but that's ungodly. It's not humble, it's prideful and it's arrogant. And it's not fitting uh, for people in the family of God. Right? We have to realize that none of us are perfect, right? So don't let anybody, somebody else's shortcomings somehow remove the weight of their accusation. This is how people get stuck in marriages all the time. Right, So a wife will try to speak some truth to a husband or a husband will try to speak some truth to a wife and because they know each other so well, you know, it's like, well, like, oh yeah, well what about you? And then you get into this thing where it's just like, hey, who can talk the loudest and out-talk the other one, right? And it's the same exact thing. It's driven by pride. And we just have to learn to recognize it among the people of God and call it out um, you know, when you see it. And listen, here's what I'm saying. I'm saying that your restoration is so important that even, listen to me, even if the other person doesn't do it gently, and even if they don't do it humbly, let's say they speak truth to you and it's all wrong. They just totally fumble the football, right? You should still want to grow so badly that you will search, you will sift through the rub, it, the, the rub, through the help. Thank you. That's what I was trying to say. That you will sift through all of that to find that grain, that jewel of truth in what they've come to tell you. Now, here's what I'm going to do. I'm, I'm just going to tease this out in the context of one thing because when I when I look around as a pastor with my pastor hat on, what I see, the thing that overcomes, well, there's two things. Um, the, there are two, a couple of things that overcome people that dominate their lives in a way that I think are tragic, in a way that they're being eaten alive, they're drowning. Uh, and one of those is forgiveness, unforgiveness, bitterness, resentment. 
uh, these things. And so what I want to do is just kind of tease this out because uh, there are some of you, I, I know just because I deal, I traffic in people all day, right, that there are some of you in this room and the unforgiveness in your heart and in your soul is eating you alive. Listen, the harsh reality of this world is that it is broken and it is filled with broken and hurting people. And guess what? Broken people break other people. Hurting people hurt other people. So if you've been around for, say, more than like 30 minutes on planet Earth and you're aware, chances are you have been hurt by someone who's hurting or you have been broken by someone who's broken. That is the fact, that is the truth of the world in which we live. And no one escapes that truth and that law. None of us get a pass, right? So in other words, what I'm saying is this, that behind every hurt, behind every unforgiveness, behind every resentment is a story. And there are thousands of these, right? And so what I'm going to do, is I'm going to read you Beth and Joanne's story because every act of unforgiveness has a story. Yours does. So this is written by a woman by the name of Beth Kephart. Uh, she writes the words. She's talking about being a new student in high school when her family moved from her old home and searching desperately for a friend. She just wanted a friend in high school. So here's what she writes. I had to think who might have room for me, who isn't taken. I had to shield myself from the hazards of rejection, send out just enough signals so that someone else might notice without me seeming too desperate. Walking up and down the halls, I studied students at their lockers, tried on different attitudes, sat in the front, sat in the back, sat on the middle of the bus. I strategized, I adapted, hoping that someone out there was looking too, that someone else would find me as their friend. I knew even then that one can go one's whole life without a friend. I realized that there's the possibility of perpetual loneliness, she writes. So then she goes on, and I'm going to kind of summarize. Uh, so, you know, Beth finally did find that friend. Her name was Joanne. She, you know, Joanne was funny. She was bright. She was warm. And uh, that year, Beth writes, the year she met Joanne, the world became a different place for her. I mean, the cafeteria was no longer a no-man's land. I mean, because there was someone in the cafeteria that was saving a seat for her. Uh, you know, um, four years went by. There were birthdays, there were pizzas, there were projects, there were makeovers, there were sleepovers. Um, and so, you know, because of Joanne's influence on her life, Beth joined the band. They took up music together, both had a musical passion. They did everything together, as a lot of, you know, friends do. Until one day, um, Beth met a boy, and uh, he was kind of the big man on campus, and Beth confided to Joanne over and over and over again, told her, would tell her about all of her interactions with this young man, and uh, how much she cared about this young man, and how much she loved this young man, and then, uh, and, and, and Joanne would often encourage Beth and say things like, hey, well, you know, if you're just patient and, you know, you just stick with it, I'm sure that one day, you know, maybe he'll open up his heart to you. And these conversations continued right into their senior year when Joanne showed up at the prom with this guy that Beth 
had been talking to her about for years. And all of a sudden, Beth knew all over again the ache of loneliness, the hope of searching, you know, and the anguish of betrayal. And here's the thing. I mean, when you think about betrayal, right, you've got your stories. I mean, you've got your, you know, you've got your hurt. And, and the thing is, you know, when we, when we work our way through these stories, right, and they're all so different, but the one thing they all have in common is that, you know, it hurts it deeply. It's painful. It's debilitating. And so we, some of us, we tell these stories over and over again to ourselves in such a way that it props up our anger and our guilt, and we refuse to let go of it. And we just live, we, we, just, we choose to live as a victim for the rest of our lives. So here's just what I want to say. When Jesus talked about forgiveness, Jesus talked about forgiveness in terms of releasing someone from a debt that they owe you. And we recognize this. We'll, we'll use this terminology in apologies. We'll say things like, I owe you an apology. We realize we're in debt to that person. And so Jesus said that true forgiveness is to cancel the debt that another man or woman owes to you. You just cancel the debt. So in other words, no matter who it is, no matter what they've done to you, you can do this. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Why should you say for one more moment, I cannot, when God has said, oh yes you can. Oh yes you can. So you know you've gotten to forgiveness, and it's, and it's a process, and you'll have to restate this. Sometimes you'll have to restate it to yourself several times. You look at that man or woman, or you picture that man or woman who hurt you so deeply in your mind, and you say to yourself, and you say to your Heavenly Father, they don't owe me anything anymore. I cancel. They don't owe me an apology they don't owe me anything anymore. It's then and only then that you can know that you are walking in forgiveness. And it's so vital that you do because, listen, forgiveness is a snare and it is a trap. And it will keep you from progressing. Unforgiveness will keep you from progressing in the Christian life. So let me just ask you, who in your life Whose debt do you need to cancel? And you're the only one who can do it, friends. At least as it relates to you, to your story. I mean, you're the only one that can tell a better story or a different story with your life. No one else can do that for you. Only you can do this through Christ who lives and moves and breathes within you. So will you? Will you do it? Will you do it? And will you be the man? Will you be the woman? Will you be the one that doesn't just stuff your hands in your pockets over and over and over again and look the other way when brothers and sisters are struggling and wrestling and drowning in sin? Let me pray for you, for me, and for us. Heavenly Father, I did my very, very best. Would you work? God, would you do something different in this church 
Would you do a new work in our hearts and our lives? Would you help humility to flow out of our hearts and our minds and our lives? Would you give us courage to face awkward moments in the name of helping and loving and building others up? God, remind us this morning that it is unloving to refuse to restore a brother or a sister who's lost their way. So God, we look to you. We're so grateful that when we had lost our way, that you came for us that you sent your son to suffer and bleed and die and to, to be raised again, that you might bring that resurrection life into our lives. So God, just help us follow your example. Help us to do an intervention with others in exactly the same way that you did that intervention in our lives with the same grace, the same mercy, the same gentleness, the same humility. We ask And we pray in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.